0: Heavenly Father, we come to you today giving of our tithes and offerings with thankful hearts. And we pray that you would take and use these and make them effective for your glory. And Lord, would you enable us to continue to live generous lives, not only as we give of our money, but Lord, as we give of ourselves, that we would see ways in which we can serve you by serving others. Open our eyes, Lord, cause us to see and respond. Thank you for your goodness to us, for your provision. We trust in you completely, Lord, to meet all of our needs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 18. Revelation 2.18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself... have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we come now to your Word, and we ask that you would do what only you can do, and that is pierce our hearts and cause us to hear, to see, to understand, and to believe. Help us to know your Word, to know you, to love you more and to trust you more. So, work among us, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. One of the things that stood out in my studies this week in the city of Thyatira were the number of scholars and commentators and authors who mentioned how insignificant Thyatira was. It sounded a little bit like a jab. You know, we don't want to be thought of as insignificant. But I don't think, as as I studied on it, I don't think it was anything that was intended to be an insult. It was rather just a statement of fact that, compared to many of the other cities, Thyatira just isn't prominent. It didn't have anything in it that set it apart. It wasn't uh, the, the place like Pergamum, where it had become the kind of the administrative headquarters of the Roman Empire in that part of Asia, or Ephesus with its cultural impact and all of the outworkings of that. Thyatira was out in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. It just didn't have the prominence that some of the other cities had. And yet, what's interesting is in this letter, we see a couple things that make it prominent. The church, of course, was prominent to Christ. The church mattered to him. And so in this letter, or in this message as a part of the larger letter, we see a couple things that make it stand out. One, it's the longest To the city of Thyatira, Christ sends his lengthiest message. And the other thing that we'll see is that it's at the center of all of the message. And we'll talk more about that and the outworking of that in just a minute. Thyatira had become the center of a number of trades. There were natural resources that made this uh, possible, things like uh, the dyeing of fabric and uh, Metalwork. work. There was a prominent bronze, copper industries there. You might remember Lydia from our study in Acts a few years ago was a seller of purple goods. Lydia was from Thyatira. Now, we came across her in Acts when she was in Philippi. She was a God-fearer, but she came to saving faith there. And there was evidently, again, natural resources that allowed for Uh, a certain coloring of that purple fabric that made it so desirable that she would go around Asia and sell. We also know from archaeological evidence that beyond the fabric dyeing industry being there, there was also metalworking, prominently bronze, uh, and copper. And it may be why uh, when Jesus refers back to the vision that John had of him in John 1, that he points out to his feet being like burnished bronze. That's how John described him. And so this was a city of tradesmen and tradeswomen. These were artisans who knew their craft and who did it. And as a result of the many trades there, these trade guilds grew up. Now, we've talked about the trade guilds before, but I've I've uh, not gone into a lot of depth on them because I knew we'd be coming to Thyatira where this was a more central theme in their story. These trade guilds were similar in some ways to our modern-day trade unions, although different, as you'll see, in others. Beyond the support of the trade itself, there grew within the union's uh, pagan worship, and it became part of the trade guild. So your occupation was no longer something that you just went and did and attempted to excel at, to do it well. You had to be a part of these organizations, and there was this external pressure to be a part of these external organizations. And these external organizations began to require more and more activities that Christians simply couldn't be a part of, and so the pressure grew on believers. Simon Kistemacher writes of these guilds, Thyatira was an industrial center controlled by guilds, which paid homage to the pagan gods Apollo and Artemis. Members of the guild were obligated to attend festivals in honor of these gods, to eat meals in their temples, and to indulge in sexual promiscuity. Non-compliance with these rules meant expulsion from the trade union, lack of employment, and ultimately poverty. Christians who refused to honor the pagan gods and eat the meat sacrificed to an idol and engage and sexual immorality jeopardized their material necessities. They were regarded as outcasts of society. Now, you may not be able to relate to something like that, or maybe you can, but it really is a picture of the influence of a culture. A lot of times when we talk about culture, we think of culture in broad terms, like you know, Western culture or even our American culture. But if you've been around people much, and if you've ever moved or been in different contexts, you understand that there are lots of subcultures. If you're from a different part of the country, as many of us are, because every time I meet someone, there's very few people who are from Vero, uh, or many of us are from other places, you know that there are just things, things that are done differently in different parts of the world. If you come to where I'm from, you might hear something like, that's not the way we do things around here. Or you might hear a similar phrase in where you're from. There's an incredible pressure from the culture that exists around us. And that is something that we can relate to and understand. And we see it today even in our own time. The expectation was this is how we do things. And if you can't conform, you will be, in a sense, canceled. And this is what was happening to the believers in Thyatira. They were being canceled. They were being pushed out because they wouldn't participate in the pagan practices of these trade guilds. And they were losing their work. They were taking a stand. And so they were suffering the consequences, the poverty that resulted in that. And so you can understand then when a teacher would come along who calls herself a prophetess and begins to talk about deep things, things that are new, some revelation that she's experienced or been granted that's going to change your world in which you can now do everything the world does with no consequence. You just have to know the deep things. You have to get the special insight. And there was probably, and I'm just guessing here, a lot of special offerings that were taken to support this teaching. We understand this kind of thing goes on even in our own day. These believers were praised for their love and faith and service. That is how they genuinely demonstrated their faith. Their faith wasn't just something in their heads. Their faith was lived out. They practiced what they believed in acts of kindness and mercy. And yet they were being led astray by this false teacher. And so he comes to them, Jesus does, with this message of encouragement and a message of correction as we see in each of the letters, and he points in this case to his role as judge. Now, in our modern American context, Christians don't talk a lot about God as judge. We don't like to. We prefer to talk about Jesus as our Savior and our friend, and he is, and we should, talk about him as such, but he is also holy and just. It sounds intolerant in our current culture to talk about judgment. And so many Christians just prefer to ignore it. But we can't look at Scripture, and in particular, the book of Revelation, and miss the notion that Jesus is the judge of all. Listen to John 5.22 where Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The Son has been given that role of judge. Revelation 19, we see this expressed in a different way. 1911, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now a question that comes up when we talk about God's justice or his holiness is how do we understand God's mercy and love and his judgment and holiness? Well, the first thing that we have to understand in in dealing with that difficult question is that the problem is not God's. The problem is ours. It is our lack of understanding because he has revealed himself. He who is perfect in love, who is perfect in mercy, who is perfect in justice, who is perfect in holiness, he is who he is. But we understand how as a loving parent, might come to a child to correct them. What do parents often do or often need to do with children? Sometimes they need to remind the child of their authority as parent. Sometimes they need to remind the child of the consequences of their actions or the dangers of their actions. And in doing this, we understand this is not unloving at all, but is merciful. Have you ever known a child or someone who is an adult child who is, or yeah, an adult child, (laughs) an adult who has not stopped being a child, and you recognize that it's often because they haven't been taught what authority is, they haven't been taught about the consequences of actions, they're not ready for adulthood because they don't understand what authority and consequences are. Think of a boss who comes to you and warns you that your performance isn't measuring up. Is that a good, kind, merciful thing? Well, yes, compared to a boss coming to you and saying you're fired. A warning is a good thing to say, listen, you, you need to tweak these things. You need to change these things. A teacher does the same thing, or we hope, right? Instead of just failing you from their class, they come and say, hey, you're not meeting the standard. You need to work on these things. Maybe they tutor, maybe they help. We all prefer when the state trooper pulls, well, if this has ever happened to you, a state trooper pulls you over that you get a warning instead of a ticket. It's a mercy because he's saying to you the judgment is going to come if you don't slow down. A boss or, I'm sorry, a judge warning that one more strike and you're out before you're put away for a long time. You see, the warning of judgment is actually a mercy before the judgment falls. And in this message to the church at Thyatira, Jesus comes with the warning of judgment. He who searches mind and heart, who sees all and knows all, that they would respond in repentance, that they would turn from their sin, that they would not be entrapped by the false teaching and the consequences of the sin that would result in that false teaching. Now, one final thing to note before we look at the message itself, is that the uh, I mentioned this was the central message. We haven't talked a lot about this, but we've seen it in our other studies, particularly in Genesis, the chiasmus is a literary device. We saw this where the first and the last thing corresponds, and then the second and the second to the last thing corresponds. And we see often what is the center is of central importance or a central message. And the messages to the church churches in Asia are orchestrated in the same way. It's a chiasmus. And so here is the central message. This is a message that really applies to all churches, not just all the churches in Asia, the seven churches that this letter would go to, but it's a message that applies specifically to us. You know, some of the other messages relate to us and some of the the things that they're dealing with we have have a hard time uh, really identifying with, but here's a message that hits us squarely in the chest This is a message for all churches in all times throughout history. And so Jesus comes and addresses the letter from him who is the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I've already mentioned how this points back to John's vision in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. You remember John had this vision where he describes Christ in these images And then Jesus takes some of each of those images and incorporates them in each of the messages to the seven churches. And so to this church, he's incorporating this image of eyes like fire and feet like bronze, which is pointing to his role as judge, that he sees all and that he has these metal feet (laughs) to trample, right, to judge. So he's presenting himself here as judge The title, Son of God, it's interesting, this is the only place in Revelation that this title is used. And most agree that this is designed to take us back to the psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 2, a messianic psalm, a psalm that points to the role of the Messiah as ruler and judge. For example, in verses 11-12 we read, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Jesus comes to his church with a shepherd's rod. We think of Psalm 23, the good shepherd. His rod and his staff do what? Comfort us. What are a rod and staff used for? You ever watched a shepherd with a rod and staff? Do they take the rod and staff and stroke the sheep and comfort them? No. No, they're used for correction. To bring them back in the path to keep them from wandering off into danger. And so our good shepherd comes and he judges with his rod of comfort. It's merciful. Now, to those who are not his children, it is, an, it is a judgment that is designed to strike fear. It is a judgment of a coming wrath. And so it serves really two purposes. Now, that's not to say that his discipline doesn't strike fear in us. It does, and it should. Just like with a parent, right? There's, there's some healthy fear, or the state trooper, or whatever. We all slow down when we see him. Or maybe you, that's I, I, never happened to me, but you know what I'm talking about. You hear stories, right? There's a fear, it's a healthy fear. It's designed in us to respond to the judgment that they hold. And it's a loving thing to be warned against, straying off into sinful living, into dangerous paths, His mercy and discipline is designed to help us. Why? Because His mercy leads us to repentance. His mercy leads us to repentance. And so in verse 19, He encourages them in their walk. They're doing well, not only in love and faith and service, but it says that they have grown beyond where they were in the beginning, that they have matured in their holy works. This is kind of the opposite of the church of Ephesus. They started off well and then they lost their zeal didn't they? They grew cold. But here, the church at Thyatira, the, the believers are now doing things that exceed what they were doing in the beginning. They were growing. they were They were showing acts of love and kindness and mercy. Their zeal was growing, not fading. They were demonstrating patient endurance, it says, in a city that was considered insignificant by so many. And you have to to, to really think about the fact that there were a number of believers here at this point who had already suffered the loss of their jobs because they would not participate in the pagan practices. And yet they were patiently enduring, Jesus says. Patiently keeping on, patiently, faithfully plodding. They weren't trying to make a splash or an impact. They weren't worried about their legacy or having a platform, they were what we might call faithful plotters. Patiently enduring while loving God first and loving their neighbor as themselves. That's the picture of this church. I think a lot of times when we think of heaven, we we imagine meeting some hero of the faith or some famous Christian when we get there. But understand this, while there are certainly going to be some wonderful people like that that we've all benefited from in this life, and we'll enjoy meeting them. We're going to have to get past a lot of faithful plotters to get to them because heaven is going to be filled with a lot of unknown faithful plotters, people who have loved God and their neighbors. They have lived and died and were forgotten in this world. They simply simply, and faithfully plotted along. No book deals, no social media accounts, no speaking engagements, notoriety or fame. And so may we be so faithful, so humble, so filled with love for our Redeemer as to diligently live out our faith until we die, trusting in Him for the results instead of our own ambitions or our own abilities. The culture is working against us on this one. We think we have to make everything count. We think we have to be known. We think people have to appreciate us and thank us and pat us on the back and give us praise. We need to only worry about the audience of one. We can not worry about being known by anyone except Him. So may we faithfully plot along trusting in Him. Well, they were encouraged for these things, but they also needed correction, didn't they? Verses 20 and following, we see the words of correction uh, concerning the, the, the false teaching that was in their midst. There's this teacher, Jesus refers to her as Jezebel in verse 20, and she's promoting the idea that Christians can somehow participate in these sinful acts that are practiced by the world with no consequences. It seems she's even suggesting, similar to what the Gnostics did, that there was some deeper knowledge, something to be attained, some special revelation that she had. She ascribed to herself the title of prophetess, so she was she was getting special messages that, that you needed to hear, and she was leading people astray by these messages. This is reminiscent of Satan's oldest tactic. It's a tactic we see all the way back in the garden. What did he do when he came to Adam and Eve? Well, he, he said first, did God really say? And then he went on to, to call them to disobey God by eating of the fruit. Why? Because because they were going to know something if they did. God's withholding something from you. There's a deep knowledge, something special that you don't know, but if you'll just do what I say, then you'll gain this deeper knowledge. It's, it's one of his oldest tactics. And he has been employing it ever since, and he even does this today. Now, the teacher's name is probably not Jezebel. This is Jesus is using the Old Testament reference to Jezebel like he did in the previous message to the church at Pergamum where he referred back to Balaam and Balak. Here he is referring back to the Jezebel of the Old Testament, using it as kind of a nickname for this false teacher. That story is in 1 Kings 16 and 2 Kings 9. And he's linking it back. And we said this last week. There's an implication here. That Jesus understands that his people should know their Bibles. That he doesn't have to retell the story of Jezebel or Balaam, but he just assumed that they know, their wor- they, they know the word, they know the story, they know the account. And so he refers simply to her by that name. But not only do we see that he expects us to know the word, but we also see how the word remains relevant through the ages. That here Jesus is using an account from a long, long, long time ago, even at this point in history when he speaks to this church in Asia, but it even speaks to us to this day. It still instructs us. It's one of the beauties of God's word, that it continues to instruct, it continues to direct, it continues to correct and discipline and challenge us. His word will not return void. Now, the Jezebel of the Old Testament, you remember the story. She was a princess from Sidon. Ahab, the Israelite king, married her against God's command to marry outside of the covenant or the body of faith. And just as God had warned them as the reason why, uh, well, it happened, right? She began leading people astray to do the very things that are described here in Thyatira, that uh, she was leading people into sexual immorality, into idol worship, And so Jesus ties these two episodes together. He states clearly in verse 20 that she, the current Jezebel, is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols, just like the Old Testament Jezebel. God was merciful. Verse 21 says, giving her time to repent, but she refused. She continued to lead people astray. Verses 20 and 21 both mention sexual immorality. We know from uh, historical accounts that that's what it is. That's what was happening. We know this stuff was going on. But we also see in the Old Testament that sexual immorality is often has a dual meaning. It, it, it certainly refers to the physical act, but it also can refer to a betrayal of God Himself. God has told us, You shall have no other gods before me, He will not tolerate adulterous betrayal. And so here, the sin, described as sexual immorality, but likely included not just that, but many other acts of betrayal against God's call to refrain from living according to the world's patterns. In other words, you and I are not off the hook just because we've refrained from sexual sin. What other things are you putting before God? What else has become the object of your hope? the object of your affection, where do you go in your heart, in your mind? Where does it wonder? Where do you go for pleasure? Where do you go to dull the plain? Where do you go for amusement in the secret of your own mind, for comforts? You see, purity is not just purity of the body. It's purity of heart and mind. And Jesus says to them in verse 23, I am the one who searches the mind and the heart. And he is going to judge those who refuse to repent. Thyatira. He's going to cast them out. Her onto a sickbed, them into tribulation, and the followers of her, if they don't repent, will eventually be struck dead. This is real judgment. This teacher may have duped a lot of people into thinking that they could get away with living in sin, that they could avoid the consequences. Maybe they thought they were, like, hey, nothing bad's happening." I'm I'm making money in my trade, I'm going and doing this stuff with the trade guilds, and everything looks good, right? They don't feel anything going wrong, any judgment. And so Jesus is reminding them that he searches mind and heart, and he comes to discipline those who are his, that they should turn and repent. And he adds to that, that he will give to each according to your works, that there are consequences, we reap what we sow. Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't forgiveness and mercy, For God's children, we know that there is, but we understand that it is His mercy that leads us to repentance. And the mercy may come at first in the warning of judgment. Isn't that a mercy? Yeah, we've established that. That's a mercy. But even the judgment, the discipline itself is a mercy because it corrects us. It's the rod, the staff that brings us back onto the path. This is an incredibly loving thing that our good shepherd comforts us with his rod and staff to lead us back to green pastures and cool waters and comfort our souls. His discipline, although unpleasant, is good for us when we're sinning. Now, before he moves to the promise, Jesus mentions, interestingly, those who have not been duped by this false teacher. Look in verse 24. They have not fallen prey to the false teaching. I think it's interesting that he distinguishes this group. We're not told which group is larger. It, it may be that the ones being led astray was, a, was the minority in, in, the, in the church. We don't, we don't know this for certain. Jesus is still dealing with them, but he doesn't leave the others out. He refers to them as those who have not been seduced to learn what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, we're not given an explanation why Jesus uses these words here, Uh, But the explanations that I read that I thought were the most plausible is that it's likely that she was teaching that these were the deep things of God. And this is Jesus' way of saying, "Mm -mm, not the deep things of God. These are actually what she's calling deep things. These are the deep things of Satan. This is false. It's wrong. And that, of course, would have been... Consistent with Gnostic patterns that were, were so prominent in this time. The deep things are actually of Satan. And thus, this is a warning to Christians throughout history, including our own time. Greg Beale writes, Christians must always be aware of those who lay claim to new revelations or deeper truths and have never before been discerned or widely practiced in the body of Christ. Let me read that again. Christians must always beware of those who lay claim to new revelations or deeper truths that have never before been discerned or widely practiced in the body of Christ. It isn't that tradition becomes our scripture. We, we go to scripture for truth. But beware when someone comes along who for the past 2,000 years delivers something that, that the church has never seen, understood, or taught. Be very, very, very wary So he comes to them and he tells them to do this. Hold fast to what you have until I come. You who have not been led astray, don't let your guard down. Know that Satan still desires to deceive you. Stand firm. And then he moves on to the promise. Now we're familiar with the pattern now as we're in the fourth message to the churches. We know how this works that at the end is a promise given to the one who conquers or to the one who overcomes and I know we've made this clear, but for the sake of anyone who hasn't been with us and for a good reminder that we can all benefit from, the overcoming is our faith. 1 John 5.4 The overcoming is not our works, it's not our effort, it's not our good intentions. The overcoming is the one who has overcome and it is our faith in Him. That's who the promise belongs to, to the one who trusts and the Son of God, that's what John says in his first epistle. And here, the promise to the overcomers is authority over the nations, to rule them with a rod of iron. Sounds like something out of Narnia, doesn't it? It's a little bit exciting, right? That we might be kings and queens and rule the land. Jesus clarifies what all this means. He says, first, the authority has been given to him by the Father. He is serving in the role of judge. And this takes us back to Psalm 2 this messianic psalm that points to his kingly rule, that at the time under the Old Covenant, it's expressed through the kings of Israel, but now the reigning Christ is ruling from his throne and ruling through his church, the body of Christ. What does this look like? Well, in Matthew 28, Jesus gives what we know is the Great Commission, a passage we're very well familiar with. Listen to his words in the context of what we're looking at today. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, this is not a ruling and a reigning according to the world's understanding. It is a ruling through the transforming power of the gospel. Making disciples, that is calling people to follow Christ in faith. Baptizing, it's a picture of bringing people into the covenant community. Teaching them to observe describes the benefits of a life lived according to God's gracious law. You see, the ruling that we experience in this part of life is upside down. It isn't about our power and authority. When we read it, let's be honest, that's what we want. That's why I made the, the Narnia quip. We want to be kings and queens. We want to rule like kings and queens rule. But that's not the way it works in the kingdom, because we're not the ones with the power. Jesus is. And so it is his power and his authority that he is ruling through his body in our weakness and humility. That's how he works. He doesn't work through our power, through our authority. He works through our humility And our weakness. And this is why we have all of the teaching about the first will be last, the last will be first. He who seeks to be greatest will be the servant of all. And all of this language that shows us this upside down nature of the kingdom. It is upside down because it isn't about us. It's about Him. And it's designed not to give us glory or power, but it's to ascribe power and glory to Him. And pots are shattered as sinful patterns are defeated. And and strongholds are brought down. The church moves forward with Christ's transforming power so that even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, the church is not a country club. We're not a civic organization. We are the kingdom of God on display, on the move, and in power on earth. And to that end, Jesus promises us himself. Look in verse 28, the morning star. We know this is a reference to Christ himself because he uses it again later at the end of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 16, where he describes himself as the bright morning star. In other words, he is forever with us. He is guiding us and empowering us and working through us to accomplish all of his sovereign purposes until he returns. And at that point, all will be made right. And we will have no dread of his judgment anymore. Because not only will we enjoy the benefits of the penalty of sin being removed, which we enjoy now, but at that time, the power of sin, the presence of sin will be removed from our lives. And we'll have no need for correction anymore, will we? We will walk with him in holiness. But for now, we still need... His loving correction don't we we need his guidance we need his discipline that we would be kept safe from the effects of our sin he knows all he searches mind and heart he knows when we sit and when we rise he knows us full well and this knowledge either produces in us a dread that makes us want to run and hide or shake our fists in his face or this knowledge will lead us to fall before him to receive his mercy And so if you have never trusted in Christ, then consider His loving kindness toward you today. Call on Him in faith today for the forgiveness of your sins, that you should no longer have to fear the dread of His all-seeing eyes. And for you who are believers, don't harden your heart in unrepentant sin. Don't pretend that you can hide from Him and do things or think things in secret. He sees all He knows all, and He desires that we repent. Daily coming to Him, in faith, turning from sin, turning toward Him, trusting Him. Know that as His child, He will not lose His grip on you, but as His child, He will correct you in discipline. He will lovingly, lovingly use His rod and His staff to comfort you in bringing you back from the path of sin. So call on the one who is faithful and true, the bright and morning star who is abundant in mercy and ready to forgive. Know the freedom from sin through repentance instead of wallowing in slavery to it. He stands ready to forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so may we continue to be faithful plotters in this life that he's given us wherever he's planted us for as many days as he allows. May we continue To trust Him. Because He is faithful, we can patiently endure to the end. Because of His mercy, we can hold fast to what we have until He comes. Let's pray. Lord, would You do this work in us. I do pray today that if there's anyone here who does not trust You, that You would draw them to Yourself. That they would see the loving kindness of You. That they would call on the name of Christ in faith the forgiveness of their sins, that they would know the freedom that is found in forgiveness. And Lord, for every believer here today, would you continually call us to repentance, to live lives of faith and repentance, where we don't become complacent or indifferent towards sin, but we recognize the dangers, the consequences of living sinful lives, that we don't get warmed up by the culture into thinking like these, these, these folks who followed this Jezebel, into thinking that, they, that we can live as the world does without consequences of sin. Lord, keep us from that. Protect us from that. May we see that sin is dangerous and harmful, but ultimately, Lord, it's an affront to you. It's a betrayal against you. And so would you break our hearts over our sin and lead us to repentance, that we would trust you and obey you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins that is ours in Christ. Would you remind us and refresh us in that forgiveness each and every day that we would then be faithful plotters, regardless of whatever opportunities you give us in this life, that we would live according to whatever you've given us to steward, that we would live in a way that is loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself, trusting you until the day that you call us home or the day that you return. And we look forward to that and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.